upstairs for some sprouts, going to have a good time in there. So, um, but yeah, thanks so much for being here in person, online. If you're watching or listening later, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, I wanted to um, piggyback on something that that Drew is talking about, like, like I know there's a lot going on in our lives, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially, and if, if you ever find yourself in a, in a place of, of need, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know how we can support, how we can pray, how we can rally around, um, and so uh, I know we, we pray about specific things that we know about, um, but I know there's a lot that we don't know about, so don't, don't hesitate to let us know how we can uh, come around um, everybody together as a family. Sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. And sometimes it's helpful to be able to pick each other up when we're down, right? And uh, so just appreciate uh, appreciate all of you in that. So, um, all right. Well, hey, we are in week two. Last week we kicked off the uh, After God's Own Heart series and we looked at how this little runt David, right? This unkingly looked over. He was the eighth child out of seven, right? If you were here last week, you kind of know the joke that there was seven sons. And then it's sort of like Samuel's kind of like, wait, none of these are the ones that God called. You got to have one. You have one more? And they're like, well, yeah, he's out. He's out, you know, doing grunt labor farm work over there, right? Um, but we contra- contrasted the, the, the runt David and the kingly Saul, right? Like David seemed like the underdog, um, but we saw that God looks at our heart. And how sometimes the externals, the exterior, can get in the way um, of us as we evaluate each other, but also sometimes as we evaluate ourselves. But God sees into our heart. Well, this week, um, David takes on an even bigger giant, a literal giant. I love this story so much. So we can all probably uh, identify different giants that we've either faced in our lives or that we are currently facing, right? Like we all have giants in our lives that seem like impossible obstacles, uh, uh, enemies, like things that have happened or are happening uh, that we're, we're facing, right? They can be big. They can be powerful. They can be taunting, intimidating. They can be seemingly insurmountable obstacles and giants that we don't have a shot against, how many of us have been there in life? Probably a lot of us, right? Most of us, if not all of us, have felt like we have faced Goliaths in our own lives. Well, this morning, we're actually going to see how God gives us the strength to face and also defeat the giants in our lives. Before we dig in, though, I just want a little side note from last week. I, I, Sunday afternoons are always interesting for me because I kind of replay it in my head of what I was, was teaching, and, and all of a sudden I had this, like, this deep, like, oh no, I hope that I didn't come across this way. And at our Connect group, uh, this is a shameless plug for Connect group, uh, we actually always kind of like, guys, I am petrified. Did I come across this way? And they were like, nah, I don't know what you're talking about, weirdo. Uh, we didn't listen to anything you said anyhow, so, so I was like... But, but no, it was kind of interesting because we talked about how God calls us, and if he calls us, he empo- equips and empowers us, and, and sometimes that's a radical shift in our lives, right? Like, sometimes that means selling everything we have and moving halfway across the world to become a missionary or becoming a vocational pastor or something like that, right? Sometimes there is that, that kind of a calling in our lives, but I don't want to give the impression that, that it's either that or nothing, Right? Because God calls every single follower to serve and follow him. 
No matter if we stay in our job, we stay in our circle, our, our, our neighborhood, our, like God has called each and every single one of us, no matter where we're at. And a lot of times, for most of us, it's going to continue doing what we're doing. It's just we're going to do it in a different way, with a different set of priorities and, and, and goals and, and, and everything, right? And so, so I hope I didn't come across as, you know, someone saying, well, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm an electrician, so it's, it's, God's not going to use me. No, 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 all right? If you, if you are whatever you do, God's going to use that. Just be open to how God's going to lead you in, in that way. So um, just wanted to uh, make sure and clarify that. So, um, all right. So we pick up David's story in 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. A lot of you have probably heard this story in your lives, um, and hopefully we're going to cover some familiar stuff, but also the Spirit's going to reveal some new things to us today. So, so let's dig in here. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between so- uh, Soka and Judah and Ez- Ezekah the Ephes Demim. So I, I'm sorry, I should have studied these better ahead of time. So I should either that or I should just say it boldly, like, there you go. And they were like, Jason is such a scholar. Oh my gosh, there we go. No, I try, but I forget things. So there we go. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the village of Ella. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. You know the cool thing about the Bible it actually happened. These are real people with real places. It's really fun because you can Google this valley and guess what comes up on Google? An actual place. This is trippy. I want to go here. Like of all the places in the Bible, it would be so fun to think about, like there's this big valley. It looks kind of flat from up here, but I guarantee if you're down in the valley, like you're, you could envision what it would look like to have the Philistine camp over here and the Israelite camp over here. And there's all these hills, but then there's this big valley. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You have your, you have your tents, you have your fires, you have your stockpile of spears and swords and shields and armor and and everybody's camped out here, and then there's that, that middle part. But what's so funny, you have to have really good eyesight on here. Do you see what's kind of down on the bottom? Gas station. Pretty sure that wasn't there when, <laughs> when uh, that was a later addition there. So, so like, just a second, Goliath, I'm going to go get some uh, Dr. Pepper and uh, 80, 89 uh, methane uh, before, uh, there we go. But anyhow, so like this is crazy. Like we, I, I, it's very important for us to like get the visual of what's going on here. Like they're camping out in the hill on one side and camping out in the other, and this is a prolonged battle, right? So then, verse four. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine rank to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Goliath was a big dude. The actual Hebrew says that he was, um, he was six cubits and a span. A cubit is about 18 inches, and a span is from tip of the pinky to tip of here, so about eight inches or so, right? And so if you do the math on that, he's about nine and a half feet tall. I'm six, seven. Now, you think I'm really big, which I am. I always laugh. I'm freakishly large. 
When I played college basketball, I looked like a shrimp because I played behind a seven-footer. Every door, I'm 6'7", the average like door is 6'8", every now and then, like in a residential, you'll get to a 6'6". I found that out the hard way, right? <laughs> but my buddy Hiram that I played with, like every door, he would like, like that, right? And then, and what's funny is he looked pretty tall, but it's sort of like, wait, you're seven foot? And then you go, and then he would like do this. And it was like, oh yeah, you're, you're huge. Seven feet is nothing. Nine and a half feet. This is eight and a half feet. Like, Goliath would literally, like, be like me in an airplane, having to, like, kind of hunk over like this, right, in, in this room. He is huge. Now, what's so interesting is that, is that some scholars try to point out, no, this is a mistranslation. He was four cubits in a span, so that would be about seven feet tall, right? I don't know why people try so hard to try to disprove the Bible, <laughs> If they said he was nine and a half feet, he was probably nine and a half feet. We don't think a lot about giants these days, but what's interesting is that in numerous spots in the Old Testament, it talks about giants. King Og, he had a bed that was 13 feet long. That's crazy. And it's not just in the Bible. There's other uh, texts, other um, uh, histories that talk about giants in the ancient world. And so what's crazy is, is that um, he comes out as the champion. We're going to get into that a little bit more here. So verses 5 through 7, um, it says this. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Okay, I like visuals. I like object lessons. What would this armor be like? Okay, so I was thinking, okay, who are the buffest people in the greenhouse family? And uh, CJ has a bum knee, and so I'm not going to call on you. Um, I know what that girl can squat. She pushes me, and so... Um, but I'm not going to pick on her. And then I thought, it's a toss-up between Tony and Joel. I've seen both of these guys at the gym. They scare me. Um, Tony is old. Is Tony not even here? <laughs> but he did, he did go running. He ran four. It's okay. I'm just, don't tell me. You know, nobody's ever going to tell me anything because it's going to come out. He ran four miles with a 40-pound rucksack on right? So his back is hurt. So, so I'm going to let you off easy. Joel, come on up here, buddy. I have seen Joel at the gym, and I was kind of like, dang. <laughs> okay, all right, ready? Are you ready to be Goliath? Okay, here we go. Okay, so this is, this is the, uh, the armor. Should I put this on? Yeah. Need help? Oh, nope. Okay, there we go. All right, 125 pounds. No, it's not. That too. All right, that's 140 pounds. You want to go race? You want to fight? I actually would love to see a cage match between Tony and Joel. Greenhouse's first ever cage match. There you go. Battle to submission. How's that feeling, buddy? Um, not so bad. Not so bad. <laughs> it's kind of heavy. Once you actually get it on you, it's kind of like I carried it up here, and I was kind of like, I'm glad it's only one flight of stairs. <laughs> but, 
But it's, it's pretty heavy. Do you think you could kind of run around very well and, and fight? Probably, probably not that well. Like, you can, you can handle it pretty well. So this is 140 pounds. The, the 125 pounds, like, they're actually saying, like, his, just his coat of mail was 125 to 150 pounds. This is 140 pounds, okay? But then his spear... His spirit said it was as long and thick and heavy as a weaver's loom. Now, a weaver's loom would have been about six feet, but in, in, the, in, the, in that culture, it probably could have been bigger, right? And so a lot of scholars think it could have been between 10 to 20 feet. Well, here's our spear today. This is about seven feet tall, okay, with 15-pound spearhead. Here you go, buddy. you can't hit me right i mean this is this is nuts and that's not even the bronze that's not even the bronze helmet and the bronze leggings like to think how like why would you say that that goliath would have been seven feet tall i'm almost seven feet and there's no way i could handle this in a battle right you would have to be nine and a half feet ten feet tall for this to actually be practical in battle all right, can you just stay here for like the rest of the morning? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> awesome. Let's give Joelle a huge hand. I will help you get this off. What's that? <laughs> now you know what it's, what it's like to be my age. <laughs> there we go. If you guys want later on, you can come and try to lift these up. Um, but isn't that crazy to think about... Goliath was that big that that was just what he fought in. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. We cannot underestimate just the magnitude of what this giant was like. So what did he do? Verses 8 through 10. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I'm a Philistine champion. But you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Now, what's interesting is that we don't do this uh, today, but it would be, it's called champion warfare, battle of champions. And so the thought was, is that it's not the actual champions that are fighting, it's the gods of that army that's fighting. And so we're going to have this champion who is filled with the power of our god, or gods, and then may the best god win. And so that's how they would fight. And the thought was, we can maybe save some lives with that, and, um, but really, they believe that the, the best god would win. And so he is calling them out to champion battle. Battle of Champions. Now, what's really sad, though, is that that word defy, harap, actually means to taunt, to rail upon, to blaspheme. This isn't just talking smack. This is actually going after the God of the Israelite army. He is taunting God. It's, it's not a good thing, right? And, and so he's standing out there, and he is taunting their God, and, and what do they do? They are hiding in disgrace. Verse 11, it says, When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. 
Now that word terrified, yare, means deeply afraid, dreadful, astonished, in awe. Like it's more of like I'm afraid. It's literally like they are in awe of Goliath. And then that word deeply shaken, hatat, means dismayed, afraid, broken, shattered. They are literally broken to pieces in their hearts and their minds. Goliath stopped them trembling in their tracks. Verses 12 through 15. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at this time, and he had eight sons. Oh, now we're back up to eight, because last time he only had seven, right? Um, Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliah, Abinadab, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. What did Samuel warn the Israelites when they wanted a king? He's going to enlist your sons in his, in his battles, right? And here's Jesse's three oldest sons that are now enlisted into Saul's army. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army. But David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every evening and morning, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. Now, what's interesting is, is uh, you know, we see this happening, right? Uh, Jesse's oldest sons are out fighting uh, for Saul. And what's David doing? The gopher work, going back and forth, going back and forth, and uh, kind of helping with, with the, the livestock in the process. Uh, verse 16. For four, uh, sorry, I already said that. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champions strutted in front of the Israelite army. Now, what's interesting is the New Living Translation says strutted, but in Hebrew, it actually means to present himself, to make a stand. This is defiance. And I, I, I've never been in the military, but I've watched a lot of war movies. Not a lot of soldiers go and present themselves as a target. That's pretty bold, right? He has so much faith in himself that he goes out and he makes his defiant stand and he taunts the God of Israel's armies. And so it's sort of like he is so bold that you can't do anything to me, right? There's nothing that you can do to, to defeat me. Verses 17 and 18. One day Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brother's. And give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. It's a weird uh, detail there. Um, See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report of how they're doing. Again, David is the little errand boy, right? He's not, I mean, this is a guy who was just anointed as king in the wilderness before then, right? And so, but here he is. He's kind of like, go run some errands, go, go help your brothers, go do the real work here, right? Then verses 19 through 21, it says, David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with these gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for battle with shouts and battle cries. Verse 21, soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. What's interesting is he shows up into the military camp, into the Israelite camp, and they're like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then they go out and they take a stand, right? Like it, maybe, maybe tide is going to turn. Maybe they're, maybe they're going to get him today, right? But then in verse uh, 22 through 24, 
It says, David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. It's so crazy at how they were mustering themselves up. Today we're going to get him. Today we're going to get him. They go out, and as soon as Goliath, as soon as the giant starts taunting at him, what do they do? Ah, run away, run away, right? Like they're, they, they don't want anything to do with him. They are destroyed just, at, just by the appearance and by the taunts of Goliath. Verse 25, it says, have you, seen, um, have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give the man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Here is the mighty kingly Saul who is hiding behind his army. In fact, he, he has to bribe by giving ex tax exemption, which that's pretty nice. And then one of his daughters? Like, this is craziness. <laughs> it, it, crazy today, but this is probably more par for the course in, in this context, right? But here is the mighty kingly Saul who is so afraid he will not go out to face Goliath. He's trying to see, <coughs> excuse me, who else would be courageous enough to do this. Verse 26 David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending the defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David shows his heart. It is not okay to taunt the God of Israel. It is not okay to taunt the creator of all things. Everybody else was scared. David was upset. This was not okay in his heart. It did not sit well. Enough is enough. Verses 27 through 30. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, this is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about these, those few sheep? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. And then verse 29, what have I done now? David replied, I was, just, I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. You know, it's really sad because Eliab is attacking David, right? Too often in the face of giants, in the face of fear, insecurity rears its ugly head and we turn on each other instead. There was an enemy out there, but what happened was that their fear and their doubt and their lack of faith in, in, in their God turned them on each other. And, and we see that because he's, what about those, not only just what about your sheep, it's what about those few sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of? Like he digs deep into David, trying to provoke him. So like, why would we attack each other in the face of a giant like Goliath? But yet, he did it, and we continue to do it today. Then in verse 31, and on it says, Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. 
Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul said, replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Here is this punk little kid (laughs) who his brothers don't even like, who his dad treats as an errand boy. And he marches right up to the king and says, enough is enough. This is not okay. Somebody has to do something and I'm going to be that man. It's so crazy because has David ever fought in a battle? No. But yet, in the wilderness, he fought lots of battles. He fought lions and bears. He grabbed bears by the jaw and beat them to death. Like, like how many soldiers could say that they did that, right? And where did it happen? In the wilderness, in obscurity. We go through all these smaller giants to build us, to transform us, to, to, to show us the faithfulness of God to where when we come against the Goliath, I'm not scared of you. Because that's how Goliaths work, is it's all intimidation, it's all posturing. And they they, they convince us that they're going to beat us. And meanwhile, David has enough experience to say, are you kidding me? This guy's a chump. I've killed bears that were way bigger than you, way scarier than you, right? Like, it's crazy to think about how David reflected on the experiences of God's faithfulness. He learned, he grew, and he trusted God. Did David want to go through those face-to-face battles in the wilderness? Probably not. I don't know too many people that would want to do that. But he did. And he saw God's faithfulness time after time after time. What's so interesting is that you contrast the courage of David with the cowardice of Israel's army and king, right? He knows God's actual strength. And those experiences transformed David at the very core in his heart, and he took away fear, and he revealed God's strength in the process. All Saul could see was how big Goliath was, but David laughed at the size difference between Goliath and God. He's kind of like, you guys think Goliath is big, you don't know God. To Saul and his army, Goliath was too big to fight. To David, Goliath was too big to miss. Amen? Like, that's, that's amazing faith. And then it continues in verse 37. Um, it says this, Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such a things before. I can't go on these, he protested, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. Isn't that amazing to see how, like, I don't know why Saul consented, honestly. I think it must have been somehow he was listening to God just saying, trust this kid, right? Trust this kid. And so he does, but then what does he do? He tries to impose himself onto David and say, okay, you're going to need this, you're going to need this, you're going to need this. Again, 
It, what's interesting is that some scholars I was kind of researching, they were saying that David was probably about 5'3", because the, like, the Hebrews weren't exceptionally large people, and if he was kind of considered a smaller Hebrew, he, he could have been like 5'3", compared to 9'5". In Saul, we don't know how tall he was. Again, how tall would have been a tall Hebrew, you know, a couple thousand years ago? We don't really know. But apparently he, his, his armor was big enough to where David gets underneath it and says, this doesn't fit me. It's not who I am. I've never needed this when I've been taking down lions and bears. And, and so I don't need it now. It's, it's crazy to think about how the culture had its ideal image of what it meant to be a warrior and David completely redefines it. Instead, David goes with what God gave him. Verse 40. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed with only his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. A stick, a string, and five small stones. What's crazy is, is that um, this is probably what he had. You know, it would have been either some kind of like fabric, some fiber type one, or it might have been made out of leather. I think they kind of used both. But it, it literally had loop on one side that you would have around, and then you'd hold the other end, you'd put the stone in there, and you would sling it, and then like pop like that. And it's amazing. Like you can YouTube videos of, of shepherd sling, ancient shepherd sling, and like guys are like destroying watermelons, right? Like, like at a distance too. Like they call it hunting accuracy, hunting deadliness. And so like, you know, David doing that, it doesn't matter how big you are. It's how good you are with what God gave you, right? And so he takes this goofy little sling and his little shepherd staff, and he marches out to face Goliath. Verses 41 through 44, Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? Now, we don't really know, was he insulting and calling David a stick, or did he not see David's sling and all he saw was the shepherd's stick? Like, you think you're going to take me out with that little shepherd's stick? Or it could have been worse. It could have been like, you're a twig, right? What are you going to do against me, right? Um, and he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. <clears throat> Excuse me. Have, have any of you guys ever read Malcolm Gladwell? Have you ever heard of Malcolm Gladwell? Outliers, um, some of those. He has a fantastic book called David and Goliath. If you haven't read it, I would really encourage you to read that because Malcolm Gladwell actually, um, he speculates that Goliath might have had vision problems. And so if you're nine foot five and you're really good at just, just you know, chopping people to pieces with your sword or with your long spear, where do you want people to come? Close. Because you're going to be able to withstand their little feeble attempts with their sword and their stick and stuff like that. And he's just going to go wham like that. But Malcolm Gladwell talks about how artillery always beats infantry. David was artillery. He knew what God gave him. You know, bam. He didn't want to come in close. And so what does, what does Goliath do? He taunts him. He tries to bring him in and lure David into his game. Fortunately, David knew who he was, and he chose the high road. He goes, I'm not coming close to you. I'm not going to play on your terms. 
How often do we get sucked into the yuckiness when we're facing giants? We get sucked into the, the nastiness. Like, they insult us? Well, I'll show you. I'm going to insult you back. And next thing you know, it's like we don't even know Jesus because we're fighting the fight that they're fighting. When God's called us to fight differently, we fall right into the taunting. We get sucked in at our own expense. But fortunately, David knew who he was and knew who he wasn't. Verse 45, David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied, you have taunted, you have blasphemed. blasphemed. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will cut your head off, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. He, ref- he redefines the strategy of battle. He understood what Paul, hundreds of years later, knew, that we don't fight against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on all the gods put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places therefore put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil then after, ba- and then after the battle, you will be still standing firm. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 5, says this, For though we live in, this, in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He fights battles with the strength that God gives him. He fights battles. He faces the giants with God's strength in him. And what's really cool is what does he do? He gives all the glory to God. What was Saul's downfall? I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it the way I want to, and I'm going to get the glory. I'm going to get the honor. David says, I'm going to fight with God's strength, and he's going to get the glory. And everybody will know that there is a God of Israel. And then to close out in 48 through 51, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword out from his own sheath. This is some next-level stuff. David used Goliath's own sword to kill him and to cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Who's taunting now? (laughs) David runs into battle with the confidence of God's strength. 
and he defeats the seemingly impossible giant and army. The big idea of this passage is this, is that God gives us the strength we need to face and even defeat whatever giants we face in our lives. Here's four takeaways from this passage. Number one, David saw what was wrong and he was not okay with it. He, was, he, he, he saw what was happening, and while other people ignored it, rationalized it, excused it, normalized it, whatever it was, they were kind of like, oh, let's go talk really big, and then when we get out into the battlefield, we're going to run away like scared little you know, children, right? Like, they just, they didn't, they weren't, they weren't broken by what was happening. It just became normal for them. And so they allowed it. What's really interesting is there, there's this phrase called the normalization of deviance, right? Like that's kind of, we've been learning about this phrase in the last several years. And, and the whole concept is this, is that once was, the, that which once, once was bad is now good, that which was once good is now considered bad. And, and what was used to be deviant and not okay is now championed. And what was used to be like, no, this is who God made us to be. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is evil. You can't even say the word sin anymore because you can't judge me, right? Like we can't speak into the dark crevasses of our lives. We can't speak into the brokenness. Well, why do all these things happen? Well, we can't say because it's wrong, right? We... What's so crazy is that David's brothers and the army of Israel and even the king himself were paralyzed in fear in the face of this. Now, please don't hear me say that we all need to pick up arms and become angry Old Testament prophets. That's not what I'm saying. Because we have the whole Bible. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We have David chopping off Goliath's head, and we have Jesus who dies for the giants. We have to take the whole picture into consideration, right? What Jesus shows us is that there is right, there is wrong, and we need to be compassionate. We need to be loving. When someone is, is beat down and they feel like an outcast and they're all this, Jesus shows truth and grace. He, he shows us what real transformation looks like. But the thing is, is that Jesus didn't just sit back and just say, you, you do you, you're okay, there's nothing wrong with you. He says, no, there's something deeply wrong with you. I'm not okay with it so much that I'm going to die for you to transform what's wrong. How do we follow in those footsteps of Jesus? How do we proclaim that in a world that's broken and hurting and hurtful? How can we run into battle knowing I am not okay with where things are at and I want to bring transformation. I want to show the love, the grace, the truth of Jesus with boldness and compassion. So number one, David saw what was wrong and he wasn't okay with it. Number two, David chose to see ways for God to win instead of being intimidated and expecting defeat. See the difference there? Everybody was thinking, Goliath, Enough said. It's impossible. We can't even go into battle. We're going to run away as soon as he starts taunting us, and Goliath wins. I laugh. Uh, years ago, Nicole's brother, he was, he's, he's always very witty and wise, and he was telling my, my boys when we were together on vacation one time, and he goes, ah, boys, 
He who said he could and he who said he could not were both correct. It'll hit you at lunch. Right? Because if you say that you can't, guess what? You can't. There's no way. Like Israel, there was no way that they were going to defeat Goliath because they were already defeated before the game ever began. They were right. They couldn't. But David said, God can. And guess what? God did. We have to go into battle looking, expecting, knowing that one way or another, God's going to win. Even if it doesn't look like the victory that we want, even if it's not what, the way that I scripted it, I have faith that God is sovereign. He is the only God. Things will end up one way or another in a way that will glorify him. And we can defeat those giants because God defeats those giants. Malcolm Gladwell, I talked about him before in that book, he actually challenges the narrative of the David versus Goliath. He says, we have it mixed around. He says, Goliath never stood a chance. Think about it. We say that David is the underdog and Goliath is the impossible to defeat. But again, artillery always beats infantry. Goliath never had a chance against that little stone. He just didn't know it. Nobody else knew it. How are we giving God the permission to succeed and win victory in our lives? How are we crippled instead? You know, what's interesting <coughs> is that came across the quote that said, cowardice and apathy are the biggest obstacles to the mission of God. Goliaths aren't. Goliaths aren't our problem. The giants aren't our problem. Cowardice and apathy are our problem. So much, it's so easy to, to live in fear instead of living in confidence and the strength of who God is and knowing that we're on his side. So David saw what was wrong. He wasn't okay with it. David chose to see God's uh, ways for God to win instead of expecting things to lose. And then number three, David trusted the gifts that God empowered him with and he didn't have to be someone else. When Saul tried to put his armor on him, when his brother was saying, you're just a lowly shepherd, when everybody's doubting and saying, there's no way that you can do this, he trusted in the gifts, the experiences, the abilities that God gave him, and he was confident in that. He wasn't insecure. He didn't have to say, oh, I, you know, I got to become something totally different. No, God made him and revealed himself to him in the reality of his lives. How much time do we spend desiring something that we're not and doubting what God made us to be? We need to trust that God created us the way we are for a reason, and we want to surrender that to him to see him use it. And then fourth is that David gives God all the glory. Instead of being like Saul and holding it to himself, he points it all to God. David didn't want to be the hero of the story. It should be, instead of David and Goliath, it would be God's mighty power and Goliath, right? And what's cool is that these stories of victory show God's power, and they give courage to those around him, right? Like as soon as the nation of Israel, the army of Israel, saw David succeed because of the strength God gave him, then all of a sudden it turned the tide of the battle. What's we have to remember is, is that we, we shouldn't be quiet about the victories that God gives us. 
when, when we see God delivering us, transforming us, saving us, sanctifying us, forgiving us, setting us free, we should shout those from the rooftop. Like sometimes we're kind of embarrassed because I don't want to, you know, so we're like, when praise God for that, right? Because what happens is that sometimes we hold in the victory that God's give us, given us when someone else in the, in the church or in our community is struggling with the same thing that we were struggling with. And they need to hear that God can overcome those giants. Now, one of the dangers of the David and Goliath story is that it can be twisted into a believe in yourself and you can do it, right? That is a very popular message today. Manifest it. What? I can't manifest anything, right? That's, that's a very dangerous path to go down, to say, I am the David. I can take out Goliath. Just believe in myself. Well, guess what? If I believe in myself, I'm going to get more of myself. (laughs) I'm going to get more of what I've already had. I got to allow myself, I got to allow God to work in and through me. But we also have the spiritualized version, just as dangerous. Trust God and he's going to give you victory over all the giants that you want to defeat. Sometimes we use God to get what we want. When we're saying, I'm going to surrender to him. We get cocky, we get arrogant, we start to hog the spotlight instead of giving God the glory, right? It's very interesting. Um, I'm a big fan of football, and there's, I, I follow a few different Christian um, uh, athletic uh, sites on Instagram, and, and there's a lot of athletes that are winning that are praising God. Guess what I want to hear about? The athletes that are praising God when they lose, when it seems like they lose, when, when they're taken out of the game, when they're retired, when they're injured, when, they, when they're facing just, it looks like defeat, and they are still praising God. That's what I want to hear, because God is defeating the Goliaths in their lives, and they're, they're praising God, even though it might not always make sense to us, right? We step out of the spotlight, and we turn that over to God. So David saw it was wrong, and he wasn't okay with it. David chose to see way for, for God, for ways for God to win, he trusted the gifts that God had. Uh, he trusted the, the gifts that God had given him, and then fourth, David gives God all the glory. So, how do we move from knowing to doing, believing to action? I'm going to invite us to do two things. Number one, identify the giants in our lives. Just, just write it out. Ask God if you don't know. I mean, probably most of us know, right? But if we don't know what giants we're facing. Just say, God, show me what giants I'm facing. Name my Goliaths, right? What are the Goliaths that we're facing right now? And how are we hiding in the hills (laughs) instead of meeting him out in battle? And the second thing is this. How is God calling and empowering you to fight this week? If, If God shows you, if the Spirit reveals a Goliath that's in your life right now, guess what? God wants you to go out and meet it in battle. Not by yourself, but with the strength and the resourcing that he gave you. Um, I was encouraged. It was a really good point um, on the, the ski trip is what, what uh, guys do on the ski trip. We sit around talking about the book of Psalms, right? We were getting in touch with, with Psalms here. No, it was really good. Actually, uh, uh, one of the guys was saying, hey, you know, there's like this you can kind of look up like what psalm matches with what's going on in David's life. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to have to look up. And Now, this isn't uh, concurrent with, with 
David fighting Goliath, but I think it came after years of David fighting Goliaths, right? And, and it's cool because we see David's journal in the book of Psalms, and we see his prayers. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and so this morning, I want to close out with this. I want to close out with Psalm 143. I don't have a slide on it, but you can either look on your phone or you can close your eyes and just listen to it. But this is Psalm 143, a Psalm of David. I encourage you to, to read this throughout this week, just like we were um, reading a Psalm last week. It says this, Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to my plea. Answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Don't put your servant on trial, for no one is innocent before you. My enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground and forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I am losing all hope. I am paralyzed in fear. I remember the days of old. I ponder your great works. I think about what you have done. I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. Don't turn away from me or I'll die. Let me hear your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I run to you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. For the glory of your name, O Lord, preserve my life. Because of your faithfulness, bring me out of this distress. In your unfailing love, silence all my enemies and destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that we don't go into battle, we don't face the giants alone. You see the giants much more clearly than we do. So God, I pray that we can listen to your heart. God, I thank you for David's vulnerability as he just cried out in, in agony, in depression, in fear, in uncertainty. But yet, God, he finds his firm footing in his faith for you. God, I pray that we can take this to heart, that we can listen to your spirit, that every morning when we wake up, God, we can, we can be on giant watch, that we see the obstacles that we face. We see the things that maybe we don't even realize we're living in fear of. Maybe we've just stopped caring. Maybe we've embraced them and, and said, well, this is what it's supposed to be. God, I pray that we would be able to listen to you. We would see your heart we would see your love. We would see your power. God, I pray that we can surrender our lives to you. God, give us victory. God, if we're living in, in pain or agony physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually, show us your victory. Show us your strength. Show us what freedom means. God, help us to, to live as free as David who ran into battle against the supposedly impossible foe. God, give us that faith every day as we walk in you, in life with you. God, I pray that we could encourage each other with stories of victory. That we can, we can sit with each other 
and the struggle in, in, in between. God, that we would never lose sight of just how good you are. God, I thank you so much for your love. We pray these things in your name.